0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Bernardo Batis, and welcome to a special edition of New Books Network, in which we talk to previous winners of the Coleman Prize. Naming the honor of British business historian Donald Coleman, 1920-1995, this prize is awarded annually by the Association of Business Historians to recognize excellence in new research in Britain. It is open to PhD dissertations in business history, broadly defined, either having a British object or completed at a British university. All dissertations completed in the previous years of that of the prize are eligible. Today, we have Ian Jones with a dissertation entitled Using the Past, Authenticity, Reliability and the Role of Archive in Barclays PLC use of the past strategies. He's He was recipient of the Coleman Prize in 1922. Ian, thank you for being with us today. Oh, thanks for inviting me on. Ian graduated from the University of Coventry and then pursued a PhD in both the history and the business school departments at the University of Liverpool. After graduating, he had appointments at Northumbria University, and he's currently a career development fellow at the University of York School of Business and Society. Ian, tell us a little bit about how you became uh, about yourself and how you became an academic. Please. Okay,
1: so um, my route into academia is probably a little bit more unusual than some of the others. So. I start. I, I was somewhat late starting my undergrad, so I didn't go straight from school to Coventry. I went and worked for a few years in retail generally, uh, but I had an interest in history. That'd be one of my A levels. That's pretty much the, some of the first books that I ever bought. Um, so did that at Coventry University. Um, did one year in Sweden and three years there, and then after that, I went back into the world of work. I didn't expect. Necessarily to be able to do a master's or PhD. I'm the first person with my family to go to university, let alone try and carry on past that. Uh, But luckily, my, who would turn up, Andrew Smith, who would be one of my supervisors for the PhD, was advertising the PhD position, and I still had contact with him. So I saw it, applied for it got the PhD at Liverpool and it's it's gone from there it's been a bit it's been a bit more luck maybe than design to actually get to this stage uh, but that's not not upset about it I, there had been the hope when I was like 18 that this is something I would be able to do but it became a lot more difficult the closer I got to it when I was 16 I assumed it's just a thing that happened university master it the closer I got now um so yeah, it was a sort of a mixed uh, a mixed zigzag way into academia, into the PhD. And then following the PhD, I was lucky enough to get a job at Northumbria working with John Wilson. This was right in the middle of COVID. So it was in the middle of the first lockdown. It was June in 2020. So it was an interesting time to be looking for jobs and starting jobs. So I was very lucky to get that first job. That's very difficult anyway, let alone the circumstances at the time. So I was very lucky and thankful to John. And then after that, uh, last September I managed to get a job here down at uh, down in York. Um, so yeah, that was my uh, slightly odd career route into academia.
0: And what about the PhD topic? Was it um, something that you negotiated with your supervisors as uh, you you, uh, you had the couple? It was not a um, um, you know the more traditional model of a single one or was it already set in the advertising? So it was sort of, um, it was barriered, I suppose, is the way to put it. So
1: my two main supervisors, Sirius of Apul, she was in the archives department specifically, that's within the history school, and Andrew Smith, who was in the business school, they had put together a project with uh, the group archivist at Barclays Archive, Maria Sienkiewicz, and they had funding from the AHRC that Barclays would contribute to as well to study something related to the archives themselves so the top the topic was about ba- was sort of boarded that it had to focus on the archives as a department in some way. But it didn't have to be anything specific beyond that. So there's going to be two PhDs. There's a PhD that started two years after me, Ashley Hawkins. She's also finished. She focused on digitization in the archives. Uh, I was there first to sort of scope out maybe what could be done and also do my own PhD. And I looked up more at how the archives actually contributed to the delivery of Barclays strategic objectives. Um, Looking at that more so from a business angle and how they use their history to do it, how they actually use the archives specifically to do it. So it was was buried that it had to be on the archives, but it was not set exactly what I then had to do about the archives. It was just, here's your broad topic, now figure it out yourself, essentially. Uh, So, yeah, I I didn't get to plan it the same way so many others did. But I did get a a lot of leeway in how I then approached it. And Barclays themselves, uh, Maria said, was a sort of honorary supervisor, were very supportive. As long as I stayed within, you know, focusing on the archives, they were very supportive in whatever
0: I then wanted to look at regarding that. Great. And what did winning the Coleman Prize meant for you personally and professionally? Uh,
1: So, as he saw it personally... As I'm mentioned, I'm like I'm the first person from my family to go to university and do a PhD. So for me, it was very um, confidence boosting. Is the wrong word, sort of confirming. So you've always got this feeling, particularly as an as an early career researcher or just finished PhD, that you're not sure if your work fits because you've not really published much, if anything, the most exposure you've had is the viva and your supervisors who are kind of, they, they are going to be supportive of you to some degree. And no one else is going to look at your PhD, your thesis, normally for years afterwards, and normally it's gonna be another PhD student looking at it for some reason. It's not, it's not the kind of thing most people are reading. But to have other people read it and actually look at it and go, yes, this work is good, it is relevant, it is original in some way, it's sort of very confirming that yes, actually my work is worth, it is, I do fit here. So like personally, that's sort of what it did for me. So like this wasn't, a, this wasn't a mistake to try and get into a world I don't know anything about. No, I can make it here. And then so professionally, it very much helped on the CV. It was a, it's an extra string to the bow. It's a thing that, you know, only one person per year gets to put on their CV. Um, and I've now worked with a few Different Coleman Prize winners: so Emily Buckner at Northumbria, Chris Corker, and Teresa De Silva Lopez above here at York, and I know some of the others as well, like Joe Lane personally. And it's it's sort of it's, it sounds slightly to It's a nice sort of it's a smaller club that you're part of that does set your CV apart, at least as an early career researcher. I'm sure the longer going into the career, the less that's going to matter. But early on shows you are capable of work that is considered by others in your field. Of worthy of a prize worthy of recognition and as, as well as journal articles that is a distinction that is you know very singular since it's only one person per year
0: and what did you learn from organizing the competition the following year i said it is tradition that the winner from year one uh, organizes the competition in year two mm. uh well
1: one of the things I learned is how difficult it is. <laughs> um, uh, not the actual sort of administrative part of it. There's the, There was a lot of help from other people at the ABH. So Christine Leslie, the ABH, was very, very helpful in the actual sort of organizing of things. And um, the other two judges, Janet Strickland and Catherine Casson, very helpful in giving me advice on how to do things. But it's actually sort of, the quality of the PhDs you're given and actually making that decision and having the confidence, like, yes, I've got the judges with me, but having the confidence in your own opinion to go this one over this one for reasons that are completely, that there is a criteria, but in the end you are making a judgment based on that criteria. And that is very difficult to do knowing as well that it matters for people and it mattered to me at the time. So one of the things I learned was the, yeah. How good and varied is the sheer amount of work that came in. we had nine or ten entries just at the beginning of the 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 Coleman Prize um, of what has been produced by PhD students out there. Um that and again that that shouldn't have come as a surprise, but thanks to COVID, thanks to the shutdown of conferences, this is the exposure that I'd had to it first time in two years essentially. Um in terms of what else to learn, how how to actually look at an appraiser thesis as an academic, which may seem like slightly odd because I'd read theses for my own, but I'd read them as sources of information and data. I had not read them the way maybe you would have to as a supervisor would, or someone giving feedback on one and actually, you know, judge it in that way. So learning that, uh, learning how to, uh, to, to host the event, said so you have to host it in person uh when they do the prize when they do the presentations and yeah i've done the occasional um like paper workshop but that's only to 20 30 people it's not to the entire conference in front of people who you have routinely cited and, and you know whose work you've read and then you've got the three people that are presenting who are all nervous that you've got to try and also make sure they can give their best effort so that was that, that that's a different experience completely to other things so uh, learning that was uh useful and then yeah. And again, there were some organizations Christine did most of the organization, but also there is a little bit of, you know, herding academics that you get to learn. And anyone that's had to herd an academic or group of academics knows that's incredibly difficult. Sure. So that, And this was the first the first time I've done it But when I'm not I'm not dealing with academics in my own university. So I've done it in Liverpool. I've done it in Northumbria. But normally that was within my own departments, people I kind of know, people I could chase down in person, not whereas this time it was people in the U.S. people in different parts of the U.K. So, again, dealing with that was also a new experience. So learning all those, all sort
0: of mostly soft skills, I suppose, but useful skills as well. Great. Let's move on. And at this point, I would like you to give us a big picture, concise overview of your dissertation. And I find it useful so that everyone has a sense of what the the, the work is about and what you wanted to achieve.
1: Okay, so uh, a big picture. Uh, So my dissertation focused on Barclays Group Archives, which is a specific department within Barclays, and said how they contribute to the Barclays strategic objectives. So I was looking, in particular, at a period between 2012 and 2016, Barclays uh, launched, uh, their CEO and Anthony Jenkins launched something called the Transform Program. Uh, this was off the back of various scandals, the LIBOR scandal being the, the biggest one. I'm not going to go into loads of detail about those. They're in the thesis if people want to read them. Um, but the final, uh, the final one, the LIBOR scandal, cost them their CEO and chairman within a 24-hour period, had both the, the former chairman and CEO in front of um, MPs answering questions.
0: And... Right. Sorry to interrupt you here. Just to clarify for to our listeners that I'll add a link to the dissertation in the show notes as all UK dissertations are freely available through the uh, British Library. Thank you. Sorry for that, Ian. Uh, but sorry, you were saying that this comes at the end of the LIBOR scandal, so it's an important time of change to the um to the institution and therefore you're trying to or, or from what i'm getting from what you're saying is that you are straddling three things uh, in this dissertation one of them is the archival studies part as you have to work in a particular department with this crisis you have organizational studies and then you have a business history interest in in coming into the um, Into the work, into the research. And you had also a guiding hand from a supervisor in each of these departments, Mary Proctor from um, organization, from archive studies or organizational studies. Uh, Archives, yeah. And uh, uh, Maria uh, Sinekewitz from uh, Barclays, and then Andrew Smith, that is somewhere in between business history organizational studies and God knows what um but um so um what sort of data were you trying to achieve and to you know what 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 is the 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 idea as strategy is in the title of your dissertation
1: All right, so it was uh, sort of three main data sources so so I'm, this was taking place, uh, the, the study was taking place, what, 2017? So from the end. I'm studying 2012, 2016. I'm a year, two years after these events. Um, but three main data sources. So one, I was embedded in the archive. So I had lots and lots of access in the archives. I mean, I, uh, they, they were very forthcoming. Anything I wanted to look at, I could, I had a card so I could go into the strong rooms on my own and look at whatever I wanted, any records they had. So I had all of that. I underwent the training, the archivists go under, um, not the full training, because to be an archivist, you need a master's degree, but sort of the professional training that an archivist would go under if they were employed by Barclays Group Archive, as well as some master's courses,
0: but not a full master's in archive studies. And sorry sorry to interrupt you again, but I, I think that we want to emphasize that this level of access is rare for a researcher. Oh, yeah. mean, if you have yeah. come as a user of the of the archives, you don't get to go into the vaults. You don't no, go to yeah. get to the to the to you know to actually where the, where the stuff is. You you are brought this out. Yeah,
1: and,
0: yeah. This, and this therefore... was
1: this, this, this was very unique. So to go to Barclays archives, they are open to the public, but it's by appointment only. And yes, you will never go in the strong rooms. You will never. You won't really get to look at their catalogue because the software is a bit awkward. You will go through the archivist. I I was treated more like I was a member of staff almost or a quasi member of staff than just uh, another researcher said even other academics wouldn't get this level of access either, let alone members of the public. The, the, you, this is very, very unique to just me and Ashley Hawkins, the other PhD student that started two years after. Um, so I had that. So I was embedded in the archives. I could observe how they worked. So I can make memos. So that that was one That was one um, of my data sets, actually seeing how they work um, and doing part of it as embedded there. The second set was documents. In the archives and documents created by the archives so by that i mean the documents in the archive the things that they have archived the the ledgers the letters the emails the things that barclays create that go to the archive but also barclays archives creates its own records to manage its own performance know tracking who's asking what who's doing what those things don't normally make it into an archive they are records for the use of the archivist to do their job they don't normally get record but i had access to them as well so i had so that, that was sort of the two i suppose record sets i used and then the third data set was interviews so i did 20 one interviews with 22 different people. So one of those was a group interview, but generally it was one-to-one interviews. And these interviewees ranged from the former CEO, Andy Jenkins, uh, various people in head office in London, and the archivists themselves. Most of these people were users of the archive, so I wanted to know what they had used it for, where they got the value from. So they were that was the main data sets. And... That, that helped me sort of triangulate a picture of here's what the archives actually does from my own experience, watching it, being trained, et cetera. Here's what people were using it for from their interviews and then using the records. Here's what they actually did, what they actually asked for, what actually happened. And here's the process as it goes. So I could sort of triangulate this chronologically, but also then actually sort of add my own observations of how this actually probably would have worked as best as I can recreate
0: after the event. So those were my data sources for the thesis. Right. And this event, uh, just to uh, emphasize, is uh, happening somewhat um, on a very contemporary or recent event, which, which was 2012 to 2015, whereas you would you would have looked, uh, you know, if it was a straightforward history or business history type of thing, you might have gone uh, farther back in, in the past 25 years or 30 years is the rule of thumb of course it, it depends our colleagues in in the history of technology think that 1997 or 2005 is old as as far as the history of the internet is is concerned um so uh, let let's move on a little bit and and talk about um your findings and uh, you know what do they highlight of the importance of the archives uh, to understand and to use or their use in the formation of of a big bank of the strategy of a big bank mm-hmm. okay so as i mentioned
1: in 2012 the new ceo any jenkins launched the transform program in december 2012 january 2013 uh, when he announces it to the rest of the bank and a lot of that is to rebuild the, com- the corporate culture the bank that Barclays had been accused by MPs, by the press, um, by lots of its customers of via the press, of being a self-serving or unethical bank, and this was there along with actual organisational changes of how they actually work internally. A lot was about culture, so was to use their history to recreate or to construct a narrative that showed what the original ethics of the founders and the bank had been and to return to them. And they they, they come up with their five, um, the shorthand is Rises, Respect, Integrity, Service, Excellence, stewardship. But in order to do this, they needed to know what they were. So the first thing they have to do, they, they go back to the archives to find out what do their Quaker founders believe in? What is their history? What is their narrative? They they have bits and pieces already. There's the official book by Leslie Hannah and Margaret Akril, but they actually need they they wanted original research and they also wanted the records that showed these things happening. So if ever challenged, here's the ledger that says we did it, here's the letters that we did it, and only the archives could provide this. And this is where that first part comes from. Um a role of authenticity. And let me
0: stop you, let me stop you there because I think there is a an interesting uh, um spin or or aspect into this, and and that is the perception of Quaker Baker Quaker roots to UK banks, and that is perceived as very important as a signal or as a um a narrative as as providing a story of property of trust and of of good management. Which is the up op- is, is not the same thing in the States and in some in, in, in the US from what I understand. Whereas in the UK, uh, you know the Quaker roots of, of Barclays, of, of Lloyd's, which is another large long-lived bank, are very important. No? and and coming back to those roots and and you know trying to to save those those values, is is very interesting in 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 modern times, uh, you know, as this bank was established in the eighteenth century, if I remember correctly. I,
1: it's yeah, it's 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 part of the link connecting there to sort of wider British understandings of history. So yeah, Quakers are seen as um morally upright upstanding citizens in UK generally. I mean and some of the biggest links would be someone like Cabries as well, Cabries and Round Trees and they they Possibly even probably better known just because they're a bit more recent. Whereas the Barclays, you're going back three, 400 years. but Cadbury's, you're going back 150 years. And, you know, you've got Bourneville, the entire place built. But yet they are linking to those narratives of these are the ethics that we were founded on. And they're not they're not trying to they weren't trying to argue they are still Quakers, but they are trying to argue that the ethics that motivated them can still be part of us in this modern society. But in order to do that, they need to know what they are, how they have demonstrated them through the past, what records they have to show this and the authenticity um, that the archives provide. So without trying to get lost in the weeds here, there are different concepts of authenticity and archival authenticity is to do with the records themselves. Are they what they claim to be, where they sent or created by who they claim to be, et cetera, it is very much, is this thing what we think it is. But the authenticity of the narrative is a little bit different. It's not just truth and facts. And But by harnessing the authenticity the archive provides on its records and the data and the research, the narrative they are now bringing out in 2012, 2013 has a a stronger claim to being an authentic historical narrative. And as I mentioned, Barclays had been under attack for their for their, their, their corporate ethics, their, their their previous actions. So this claim to be returning to the ethics is going to be under scrutiny. Having the archive as the backing for this is very important. They can't just come out and say, here's our Quaker founders. Here's who we are. They need to be able to show it and prove it and use someone. They may be corporate archivists, but they are trained archivists with their own ethical, uh, ethical standards within the profession. They are trusted. Here's proof that this isn't just words. Here's proof that we've done the research. And here's proof that this is who we were. Now watch us be this again. And that's essentially the narrative that Anthony Jenkins is making. And the archive is instrumental to so that. Without the archive, this work probably can't happen. They have to do something else. They can't rely on the history in that way. So that was the first chapter. I know this was be a quicker one, but that was the first point. The second point is the reliability. This is our well focused on the material artifacts. So Again, but banks... To summarise, this banks don't make things generally, not much anymore. Um, it's, it's you know, it's digital money, it's electric money. They don't make things. Their physical artefacts are buildings. So when you're doing this sort of use of the past strategy, you have no artefacts to show. You've just got a story. Well, the archive has tons of artifacts. It's got ledgers. It's got machines. It's got uh, old guns. It's got it's, it's got a ton of things that they can then bring out. So this is the reliability. Here's the narrative that we've told you. Here's the proof that we can show you that you can touch and because they would they they took these and would use them on display at the annual general meeting. So this is where the reliability comes in. Here's our narrative, and then as the time goes by, here's the proof. We bring it out to you. Look at it. Show it. And then the final chapter was... Um well, the final chapter that wasn't a conclusion, was just on the importance of the archives as a free internal resource. So th- th- those first two chapters of a big transform program, here's how they did it, here's the strategy. The third chapter is more the people I interviewed, how did you use them, and what was the value to you in your day-to-day job of the archive? Because we do have a lot of stuff from corporate archivists who have written about the services they give to the uh, give to their organization, however archivists can learn from it. It's very useful, but we have much less generally on why other people in the organization would use them and what they found valuable about the archive. And that's what my interviews gave me. So I had the archivist's point of views on what was useful. And there is quite a lot of link across over here, but what the archive, archivist thought was useful, but then what the user found most useful, what was it about what the archives give them that actually was helpful to what they were doing there is definitely crossover, but it's not all one for one to one, and a lot of it's intangible things that you can't necessarily check up to a cost. Although having a free internal resource you could go to to ask any question you could imagine was surprisingly useful to most of them, and the archivists do act as that role. So that's sort of a broad overview. So you have the archivists plugging into big wide strategy, but also then just
0: day to day activities that help the bank fulfill its strategy in other ways. Would you care to elaborate a little bit more about the importance or of of these? organizational memory and and how all of this comes together to to build organizational memory
1: so at
0: least in the context uh the, the context of barclays barclays bank
1: their organizational memory is quite distributed um i suppose so you have a records management company that deals with things that have to be kept for a legal amount of time i'm not going to go into detail about them that they keep things for you know seven years that you have to do and then destroy them um but if you want to know anything if you want to know anything from barclays history the past or the board minutes they all go to barclays archive this is a place that one has the long-term memory but also it's the only place that sort of has the facilities um within the bank that you can just ask a question to so if you want to know um i know you want to know for example what happened in 1972 in a branch in a particular in a particular area barclays there's no one to ask in barclays other than the archivists they are the crucial sort of link between all this data they've saved in one place and the person in that needs it because and this uh, this doesn't come through much in the thesis because people didn't seem to think it was as important as I did, but I'm going to go with it anyway. The archives are in Manchester. Most of its users are down in London. None of those users ever go to the archives they're not going to have the time so the only person doing the research and that is the link between the memory the static memory that is held in the archive in the records that sort of dead dry memory that won't change and the people that need it to turn it into something is the archivist they are the link for the organizational memory so a lot of the time when we talk about you know organizations remember no no they don't people remember and a lot of the people doing the remembering in the arc in uh, barclays are the archivists because they're the ones with the access to the records to be able to reconstruct these memories. Uh, hopefully, that makes sense, and I wasn't rambling too much. But
0: <laughs> it does. It's interesting, and um, in this sense, those having an organizational memories, those having this static memory, as you say, mm-hmm. does that give Barclays a competitive advantage? Is the use of the mm-hmm. past a source of competitive advantage? Mm-hmm. Uh, with
1: this, this was something I wanted to look at more, but it's very hard to make a one-to-one between, say, a balance sheet and the memory. I would say, yes, if you use it. Um, if you don't use it, then no, it's just a cost on your balance sheet. And when Barclays decided to use the archives, that they, they use it in a routine way quite a lot for terms and conditions of old products they sold. It sold these kinds of things. But when they chose to use it strategically, then it shows its value. But if you never choose to use it, then then no, it's not a competitive advantage. I know. That, that, that seems sort of blatantly obvious, but it, it's, it's taking that sort of resource base for you. It's a resource you've got. You have to use it to make it an advantage. If not, then you're just hoarding something that does have a cost attached to it. Um, but some of the best ways that I could find that seemed to me the, the, that it was used for Barclays, other than the transform program, which was fantastic. But some of the best ways was tell employees that it exists and Barclays at this point had 140,000 employees. Tell them it exists, creative uses for to do it centrally. Tell all these people in all these different teams the archives exist. Many will not use it, some will, and they'll use it in ways you don't expect, and they'll use it in creative ways that then bring value from it. So. In short, yes, it can be, but only if you actually choose to use it. Otherwise,
0: it's just a thing that you own. You've clearly highlighted how you've brought different areas together, areas that don't usually sit or talk to each other necessarily, as uh, often in in academia in education you are shown things in a compartmentalized way and people work specializing in very short niches and very much from the outset your work is interdisciplinary it's it's bringing um these three areas of archival research or archival work organizational studies and business history together but what do you think is the most distinctive what what sort of innovative or what sort of you borrow from other disciplines or methodologies to bring this together and make it in a in a present it in a sensible way i think maybe
1: maybe the most distinctive thing about it about the the thesis overall is actually the the focus of the study. It's maybe not necessarily I mean, I think some of the findings are as well, but of course I do, I wrote them. Um but it's probably the, the focus of the study itself, the archives. This is not a thing that people generally take much notice of as a department unless they are archivists, because it's not a profit making department. It's not glamorous, it's not it's not it's not where the managers and, you know, the great the Carlisle's great men stomp around and do things. It's a very sort of hidden away thing that is actually quite important in Barclays and how they use it. And we do tend to overlook the the non-glamorous parts, either of businesses or in business. I mean, you know, who's writing a history of the inland revenue? It's very important, but no one, to my knowledge, is necessarily doing that. And, you know, we, we tend to focus on managers at the top level making huge decisions and not more ways. I'm generalizing a lot here but you can focus on the supportive departments that actually tie into lots and lots of things in important ways, otherwise they wouldn't exist. So why don't we look at them? They must exist for a reason, unless, you know, it's just a, an amazing amount of inefficiency, which also is interesting to look at. So it's a, I think for me, like, the, the actual distinctive thing was the focus of the department. And then that brought in the interdisciplinar- interdisciplinarity because I had to understand archives and I had to understand businesses and organization studies. And I am a historian by training, so there's my own personal interest of, oh, look at these cool ledgers, aren't they old? So this, this was, it was that focus, the actual topic itself that made everything else come together and I think
0: that's probably the most interesting part. And what were the interesting nuggets or the things that you like that for questions of space and time didn't make it into was what was the the final draft
1: huh? uh, it probably sort of there's sort of two things um, one one was the sort of narratives that employees made about the history themselves. So the, um, so Hamid Farugi and Andrew Smith talk about his polyphony, where people make multiple different narratives, their historical narratives about the same history. So the employees have their own interpretation of Barclays' history based on what Barclays tell them, their own experience, their own reading, and there are there is evidence of places of that in Barclays. They have this, uh, they had a little sort of social media-ish kind of site where it was there, but it never made it in for the sake of space and time and. A, Being able to contact everyone who wrote on these things and attribute to them, actually get why they think what they think. And all these histories tend to be very narrow and micro, so it's maybe more interesting from a historian's point of view than a business point of view, but I construct it. And I did write something on it, but it never made it into the thesis. Um, The other thing that I would have loved to do, but it was just too difficult and the time was wrong was that there's some evidence that this history does play into strategic decisions at board level um, talk from the interviews and bits of the board minutes but without being in those minutes you can't in those meetings you can't be sure it's all sort of inferred. You can see them sort of mention the history, but you're not sure what, because it's the minutes. What are they mentioning? What are they saying? So it seems like it's certainly not a driver of strategic decisions, but it is an it did seem like it was an element. And this may just be unique to Barclays because of the time, because it had been so prevalent for the last few years. But it was just if I had the if I had the chance and could somehow force I would have loved to think the histories and why are they why are they bring it up in board meetings. How is this affecting their decisions? How does their under, understanding change or not change what they do? What what is its relevance there? So that that would have been something I would have loved to look at. So yeah, one thing I couldn't write about, and because of space, one thing I just couldn't
0: c- couldn't quite make work. Okay, and uh, so you've moved on from the dissertation. You've worked with, and and been exposed to other senior scholars um you've done work from from that with with people who were related to your dissertation and people who were not directly related into your dissertation so so what are you working on now and you know what is your your um agenda or your your current uh project uh, well it's uh, quite a few
1: things um so uh, we got I, I got, managed to get something published last year in December with um, Andrew Smith, Nicholas Wong, who's at Northumbria, and Marta Herrera, Herrera, who's here at York on uh, in business history on Barclays sponsorship of the arts in between 1972 and 1987. Um, that one's open access, published by Business History. So. Don't know if links can be looted to that, but yeah, if, if anyone's interested, Bordusian capital conversion during a crisis of social political legitimacy. That one's open access. Um, so we got that published in December. Right now, um, I have to go. Count out the papers I'm working on the minute. So, I'm working on turning some of that thesis into journal articles. The chapter on authenticity and its role in the use of the past strategy is what I'm working on right now. I'm working on something about uh, deglobalization and Barclays Bank and how they react to globalization, deglobalization um, as, as we periodize it through the 20th century uh, with uh, Simon Mullen, who's here at York. Um, I'm working on one or two papers on a company called Jardine Matheson, who a big company in Asia, British, uh, originally Scottish formed, but did do all their work in Asia. Um, thanks to their, their interesting history. I'll just put it like that. So we're, we're looking at one or two papers to do with Jardine Matheson. Uh, I'm also working with uh, Chris Corker and Coleman prize winner who's here at York on um, things to do with the wrestling industry, which is generally looked at sort of as a bit of a funny joke, child industry, but it's an industry that's worth over one five billion dollars a year so it's an important industry so we're working on um things uh, things on that so that's what five papers i think at the minute so that, that'll do for now
0: certainly and why didn't you think or design your dissertation to become a, a single author monograph uh, or a joint monograph with your supervisors as is often the case in history um rich uh dissertations uh there's
1: probably a few reasons um some a bit some a bit more um job focused than others i mean the first off is the, the topics i picked probably wouldn't have worked for it they are thematic rather than chronological they they don't you could tell the story of the transform program but that'd be a different thesis and would have needed more interviews with different people and that's all it would have been um so it, it didn't work for what i ended up doing um yeah. The second reason, and said this is maybe a bit more job-focused, is that going for jobs in business schools, they prize journal articles. So simply, it was themed around turning into journal articles rather than a monograph. At some point, I would like to write a book. But the first, I need a career going ahead. And then I can probably take the time to do it. And that's maybe a bit depressing to just put out there. But it is kind of the case uh, that business schools want journal articles. so they were sort of the main the main two reasons. Oh, this was one quick third reason. I did want to maybe do a history of Barclays Bank or looking at their corporate magazine, of that Michael Heller and Mick Rowlandson are doing a big project on, because Barclays have a ton of them as well. But Barclays didn't want another history because they have a history book. So that did preclude writing another sort of history book because they have one that Les Hanna and Margaret Ackrell wrote in uh, 1999. So they're not interested. They they Also, they weren't interested in it.
0: They were not interested, or they were not going to sponsor it, which is different. They, I mean, you could get a sponsor to do it, and not necessarily the bank. No. I think they, they weren't interested in me writing
1: another history. They, they could, they, they couldn't have stopped me because if, they, if that's the, the way the funding agreement worked, but they were not. That that wouldn't have been on the archives. That wouldn't have necessarily helped them do what they wanted to do. And part of the funding, the it's a CDA funding. Part of it is to for. Higher education institutes to partner with non-HEIs to do something that's beneficial for both, and well, be helpful to the archives as well. A bit more to show their value to their wide organisation. So like, I don't, they, they wouldn't have stopped me, but it wasn't necessarily in their interest either to have another history when they have, they had that. They had the bank that lives a little that Philip Orga was writing. There's one or two other things that've been written under like the DCO. They didn't need another history book, basically. So there yeah my my obvious market of barclays wasn't interested in it
0: so So that works (laughs) well it's been very interesting talking to you um ian thank you very much for for sharing your experiences and your research and we wish you all the best of luck and hopefully we'll have you back at uh, new books network when when your monograph is is out thank you